Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Hey, listeners. Welcome back to Buried Motives. We're glad you're here with us for another week. We sure are. We have another great case for you. And I'm actually pretty excited to talk about this one because I visited these areas as a child. That's pretty neat. It's always interesting when you have that connection to the case. For sure, because then you can actually visualize the places that they're talking about. So if you haven't figured it out, Melissa has another Canadian case for us today. There's a lot of Canadian dirtbags, unfortunately. (laughs) It's sad. But true. Yeah. But Canadians are supposed to be so nice. Isn't that what we're known for? It is what we're known for. But this guy definitely is not that nice Canadian that people know us for. I think when you're a Canadian and you become a dirtbag, you should lose your Canadian status. It's like, (laughs) sorry, we're taking your Canadian card away because you're not very nice. You can no longer be a citizen. (laughs) That's right. We like to have a reputation of being the nice ones, the polite ones that always say, I'm sorry and excuse me. Yeah. When you run into us, we say, oh, sorry. (laughs) We totally do that. (laughs) We do. (laughs) Melissa and I earlier were talking about how great life would be if we had an undo button. All those stupid comments you make, we're like, undo. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Sometimes you put your foot in your mouth so bad it haunts you like years later. (laughs) I have one particular conversation that I'm not going to tell anyone because I'm so embarrassed, but it still bothers me. I'm like, how did I say that? (laughs) (laughs) Now I want to know which conversation it was. No, I didn't. That's going to my grave. Oh. Like to the point where I had to call this lady up and I was like, I'm really sorry. I don't know how that came out of my <laughs> mouth. I just was not thinking. But yeah, undo would be perfect in that oh. situation. Or all those times that you say that, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. You're like, undo, undo, undo. Right? <laughs> oh, Wouldn't that be great? It would be so fabulous. But Every- I wonder how many of these dirt bags would actually want to undo. Oh, this one today will not press the undo button. Uh, Have you ever met a person that always thinks they're the victim? Oh, yes. I know a person like that for sure. I think everybody has come across someone like that in their life who always blames other people for their problems and never really wants to take responsibility for their actions. It's always somebody else's fault. And that's definitely the case with today's dirtbag. Oh, I hate him already. (laughs) (laughs) This type of attitude really gets under my skin. You're a grown adult. Take responsibility for your actions. Yeah. But there's something about them that just thinks that everyone else has it in for them or that whatever everybody else has done, it's to their detriment. And then they never learn. They never grow. And by my observation, they just live a miserable life because they've put themselves as the victim. They can't find happiness because everyone's out to get me and everyone's making my life miserable. And they struggle to have any real relationships because of their attitude. Yeah, which is unfortunate. Advice from Melissa and Christy. Take responsibility for your actions. For sure. We all have to sometimes. We all do things that we wish we didn't and that we wish we could undo. Undo. (laughs) Yeah, we could click that little undo button. But we're not in a dream world. No. And unfortunately, we're in the real world and we get to talk about actual dirtbags like you're going to talk to us about today. Yeah. Oftentimes with cases of domestic violence, you hear the neighbor say, oh, I had no idea. Right. Right. Abuse often takes place without anybody knowing about it. Yeah. Behind closed doors. Mm Mm-hmm. 
And this was not the case. No one would be shaking their heads or saying that they didn't see it coming. It was not a shock when Basil Brutsky was arrested for killing three women. Oh, man. So he's an open derbig. Yep. He was the man everyone knew and everyone failed to stop. So Basil would at first come across as this super nice guy helping these women out, but he would eventually manipulate these vulnerable women until he had weaseled his way into their homes and that's when he would turn on them. Oh, man. So people knew he was abusing women. And and nobody stepped in to help. Nobody called the authorities. What's most heart-wrenching about this particular case is all of these women actually did reach out for help. Oh. And he still kills them. Oh, that's terrible. Despite his lengthy track record of allegations and charges raised against him, Basil would repeatedly only serve brief periods of time in jail. He would then be released on probation terms that did not adequately supervise or direct his reform. Instead, it gave Basil the opportunity to repeat this pattern of abuse again and again. Oh, that is frustrating when we see that happen in our legal system. Mm -hmm. Two of these three women actually stood up to him and had him charged. And he was put in jail, but not for any great length of time. Oh, man. So this case, I think, will leave you wondering if it's wise to assume everyone is innocent until proven guilty or that everyone deserves a second chance. That is interesting because I feel like I believe everyone should be innocent before proven guilty for sure. Wait till you hear this case. You might change your mind. Everyone except for the Basils in the world. (laughs) (laughs) So Basil Barutsky was born to Walter and Beatrice Barutsky on October 17th, 1957. He was the third child born into a family, which would have eight children in total. So it was a big family. Not as widely available birth control in the 50s, probably. (laughs) Nope. He grew up in Renfrew County in Ontario, Canada, a sprawling county that was considered peaceful, traditional, and conservative, and a place that valued privacy. Unfortunately, it is an area also known for its high domestic violence rates. And that's really actually not surprising because the community values minding your own business. Oh, that's true. So this kind of sets the stage for domestic violence because it's only challenged when people talk about the issues. Intimate partner violence is a plague on our society right now. Oh, for sure. Since the beginning of the pandemic, calls to Canada's assaulted women's helpline have almost doubled. And women living in rural settings are at an increased risk. And one of the saddest statistics is that in the cases where a homicide takes place between spouses, 60% have had a known history of family violence. That's terrible. And that's just the stats that you get from the cases that are reported. I bet the majority are not reported. Yeah. It is very clear that enough is not being done to keep victims safe from their abusers. And this case of Basil Barutsky is a prime example of that. Basil came from a religious family that had deep roots in the community. There's even a Barutsky street in the small township of Wilno. Basil's family tree had many generations of strong, self-reliant people, but Basil was a little bit of a black sheep. At school, he was a bully, and according to contemporaries in the county, he didn't fit in at all. Oh. Many in the small community would think that it was only a matter of time before he got himself into trouble because of his personality and his quick temper. It seems like it was another case of Jekyll and Hyde. He would initially appear as a nice, polite, God-fearing man, willing to help out friends and neighbors and enjoy laughs. But then a switch would flip and he would become tyrannical towards family members, controlling and manipulative. He drank often and would become verbally and physically abusive whenever he was agitated. And he was agitated really easily. Oh no. Neighbors and family members would describe walking on eggshells around him so that Basil would not become upset. That sounds like a recipe for disaster, quite honestly. As an adult, Basil would move to Kitchener, Ontario and work as a millwright. At the age of 20, Basil was convicted of assault causing bodily harm. 
and this would be the first documented act of violence that he would take part in. A few years later, in 1982, he met Marianne Mask. The relationship would be anything but a fairy tale. Over the next 26 years, they would raise three daughters together, Marianne's oldest from a previous relationship, and then two daughters of their own. Their relationship was a textbook case for the cycle of abuse. They would have a period of calm when things would seem like everything was going well, in which Marianne would minimize any abuse that occurred and provide justifications for why he was abusing her. The tension would then gradually build where Basil's manipulation would increase and he would become more controlling and sensitive to criticism. This would lead him to blaming others around him and he would eventually explode into violent acts. During periods of reconciliation, Basil would turn on the charm and often play the victim or use his disabilities to gain sympathy. He would make others around him feel responsible for his happiness. I was just going to ask because if he was with her for 26 years, that's a long time for that cycle to continue. And I would assume that she began to believe him that it was all her fault. Absolutely. And her self-esteem would get smaller and smaller and he would be able to more and more easily overpower her. And the cycle just repeated over and over and over again. That's terrible. So they met in 1982, and in 1985, Marianne accuses Basil of abuse for the first time. But this court proceeding would end in him actually defending against the charges, and he was awarded (gasps) $20,000. What? Yep, in legal costs. What? What the heck? Like, how does that happen? He had the court believing that she was making it up. She was being vindictive. It was because (gasps) of some of her mental health issues that she was unjustly accusing him. That's terrible. Mm -hmm. And And I hate that when they just resort to call her crazy. Like, oh, she's just crazy. Yeah. No, she's not, Basil. You're just a dirtbag. And what's really sad is it sounds like he used some past experience of abuse for herself. She had been sexually molested at an earlier age age and he used that sexual molestation against her saying that it was because of that she was all messed up and taking it out on him and accusing him when he was just trying to help her oh that's a special kind of evil right there during this case he wasn't convicted and he was actually awarded twenty thousand dollars for his pain and suffering for his pain and suffering for being wrongfully accused uh, accused yeah so who paid that? She did. It was probably more of a power move for him. Mm-hmm. You know, even if she never ended up having to pay it or actually paid it. Yeah. It was just, see, see what I can do when you try to come up against me. Mm-hmm. This was the first beginning step of him teaching her that it's not worth going to the police. Yeah. Because see what will happen. Well, that would set such a precedence for their relationship. It was around this time that he suffered a work-related injury to his right hand. And... It was so significant that the hand was actually severed and then had to be reattached again. This injury would have lasting impacts on his ability to work. Oh, I bet. But it would be an opportunity for him to use this to his advantage and play the victim. Oh. Somebody that needs to be taken care of. It wasn't long after the accident and being ordered to pay Basil $20,000 that Marianne reconciled with Basil and had their first child together in 1986. So it sounds like he used this accident to kind of get back with her because she had left him, but he had an accident and she was feeling sorry for him. And so oh. she reconciled with him to take care of him. And that's so unfortunate because little did she know she was going to have 20 some years still of his torture and abuse. In the coming years, Marianne would report several more cases of domestic abuse, but a pattern would persist where she would report the abuse and Basil would somehow patch things up with her and she would recant either before the trial or during it. Wow. He just put on the charm. 
1989, the two moved back to Round Lake Center, closer to where they had both grown up. But the abuse would continue, escalating in December 1993 when the couple again separated and Marianne brought action against Basil through the family courts, alleging abuse. And for a time, it seemed that she would finally leave him for good. Oh. But in May 1994, Basil would suffer yet another significant personal injury, this time in a car accident, leaving him with permanent residual damage to his back. Oh. Having all that pain, too, is not going to make him very nice. You often see when people are in chronic pain. They just lash out faster. Right. Marianne would return to him in June 1994, so a month after the accident, and the couple would actually be married on June 29th, 1994. Oh, man. Less than a month later, Basil insisted that Marianne sign a marriage contract, and on August 4th, the abuse allegations from before that she was holding out on were acquitted. (gasps) She just dropped the charges. So it was probably, now we're married, you need to get rid of this, you can't have this as, you know, I'm your husband. Mm -hmm. By December of that same year, the couple would separate again, just a few months before their second child was born. And guess what they do? They get back together. They do. They get back together one more time between 1999 and August 17th, 2008. So for another nine years, they get back together. Yeah, that's a long time. Mm -hmm. What would ensue in the following years after this reconciliation was a bitter court battle over the division of assets and accusations of more abuse. At the beginning of their separation, Basil was actually court ordered to stay away from Marianne for a period of one year. Good. During these proceedings, Marianne would state that Basil destroyed her spirit by relentless threats and abuse. She said that the reason that she had recanted all of her previous abuse charges was because he stalked her, constantly pestering her to recant, insisting that it did not happen, and told her that no one would believe her in court and that he would take the girls from her and she would never see them again. (gasps) She says that she believed that he would succeed and she gave in. Marianne's mantra throughout her testimony was that she did what she was told because the underlying message was that no one would believe her and resistance was futile. That's despicable, honestly. And of course she would believe it because she lost that very first case and had to pay him Mm $20,000. So if he could do that... He had convinced the courts in that case that he was the victim. Yeah. Basil's argument to the court at the time was that he never assaulted Marianne. He asserts that she was vindictive and manipulates the justice system by making false charges. He believes she suffers from mental health issues that distort her reality. He plays the victim himself, saying that the anxiety produced because of these false allegations and the mistreatment he receives because of them is so severe that he lives in constant fear of what he will be accused of next. Oh, bull crap, Basil. Bull crap. <laughs> Is so crazy, right? Well, it is. And it's like you put this woman under all this mental torment for decades and then you're going to call her crazy. You made her crazy. If she's crazy, it's because of you and your abuse. You dirty, rotten dirtbag. Oh, I feel my blood pressure rising. Well, he puts it all in her like it's, oh, she's the one that's making up these stories. But during the hearing, his two daughters would testify of his abusive nature towards their mother. Oh, wow. One daughter told the judge that the violence included hair pulling, slapping. And at one time he had even attempted to push Mary. Marianne out of a moving vehicle. <gasps> Another daughter said that her dad repeatedly threatened to burn down the family home. Man. But Basil chalks this all up to a huge betrayal that was instigated by Marianne's lies. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. When his daughters spoke up against him, this just gave him more proof that he was the victim in these series of unfortunate events where Marianne had constructed this evil portrayal of him and people were believing it. So now his daughters oh. were believing it. Yeah. And like, look at what this woman did. She turned my own children against me. Yeah. 
that's what he says. Oh, and that would have taken so much courage for those girls to speak up against their dad. Mm hmm. Because that would have affected them. They lived in that home. Absolutely. So the judge would eventually side with Marianne in November 2011 and awarded her the matrimonial home in Round Lake Center. On January 21st, 2012, this house that was the source of so much contention during the divorce hearings burned to the ground. So he literally burned it to the ground. There was no arson charges ever laid, but the circumstances were highly suspicious. Oh, yeah. He Absolutely died. he did it. Yeah. It had been entered into the court record when his daughter um, right, she testified. testified. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But then, okay, so the daughter testifies. He says he's going to burn the house down. The court awards mom and they don't investigate. There were no arson charges laid. Canada, we can do better. We don't have to be that nice. Yeah. <laughs> At the time of the fire, Basil had posted over 27 handmade signs around the property, listing his enemies by name and telling them to stay out or else. What? Okay, wait, he made signs and put them around the burnt down house? No, before. Neighbors said that the signs began to appear around the property about five years prior to the fire and then gradually accumulated over the years. <laughs> what? I'm picturing like, you know, when someone turns like 50 and they put like 50 flamingos like cutouts on their lawn. So he had been creating all these lists of people's names from the community and had them sticking like in stakes like in their lawn like all around yeah all around their fence post on trees on like just all <laughs> over their property i don't know why that is so deranged but it's like making me laugh like can you imagine you're out like walking your dog like oh christy that has my name well some neighbors would even take a drive around the property to see if their names have been included on the lists. so wouldn't that be a huge red flag or indicator of his instability you would think so yeah yeah. Marianne and two local OPP officers appeared on the list several times. Oh, man. So on his family home's property, he had posted his wife's name. That is so absurd. It is so absurd. And I think it's crazy that neighbors would actually come around and look for their name on the list to be like, oh, should oh, we I be would. careful of him? I was just going to ask you, would you be that person? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> like, does this freak have my name on there? <laughs> I need to know who I need to watch out for. Yeah, wouldn't you? Yeah, I totally would too. Yeah. <laughs> we would just be like, oh, I dropped something. Let me pick it up right here. And then looking at all the signs. <laughs> You'd have to go find all 27 of them all because they weren't all in one place. They were like all around the property. Maybe I should start doing that around the inside of my house when people <laughs> in my family make me angry <laughs> or don't do their chores or things like that. I'll just start putting sticky notes with their names around the house. <laughs> well, some of the signs were like, friends can come in and you know who you are. But then all of these other people, list, 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 like all these names, they can't come in. Wow. So, so immature too. Just yeah. weird. The fire, divorce, and Marianne's allegations of abuse weren't the only problems with the law that Basil was having at this time. I'm not surprised. Yeah. On January 1st, 2010, at 2 a.m., he was stopped at a ride program. So for those of you who don't know, a ride program is one of those check stops that the police set up to check and see if people have been drinking. Oh, like a check stop. Yeah, it's a check yeah. stop. Okay, yeah, we've all been through those. Yeah. Right. It's New Year's Eve. Oh, yeah. They're checking to see who's driving drunk. So and good thing that they do. I'm yeah. glad that they have these little check stops. Basil pulls up into the check stop and the police notice the smell of alcohol, but they assume that it's the woman in the passenger seat. He's obviously very drunk. And oh, so like they just blame it on the girl. Yeah. <laughs> so they assume that it was the girl and they just kind of let him through. But as he's pulling out of the check stop, he hollers out the window. Happy New Year's to the police officers. And both of them that are standing 
standing there notice that he has slurred speech and they decide to follow him. Good. Yeah. Dummy. So over the next six kilometers of the road where the police are following him, Basil is driving erratically all over the road and they eventually pull him over. He refuses to do a breathalyzer test and he's charged with a DUI or driving under the influence. Yeah. Well, good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, he was actually trying to be nice. He was trying to be the nice Canadian. Happy That's New Year. But he would later go on to appeal this charge because he felt the police officers had rigged the test and that the first judge who had heard this case believed the police officer's story more than his. Oh, my goodness. So he had originally refused at the scene to do a breathalyzer test. They took him in, held him in custody for a couple of hours and then redid the test. And when they redid the test, he felt that they had put alcohol in the breathalyzer test or in the tube and then had him blow in it. And that's why he blew over. He accused the police of doing that. And in actuality, if they waited a couple of hours, the marker should have been lower. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were doing you a favor. Yep. <laughs> Years later, Basil would use this charge as proof of his long-standing victimization by the police. Okay, I think we need a sound effect for me rolling my eyes because I feel like <laughs> I'm going to be doing that a lot in this case, but the listeners won't be able to know. <laughs> Insert eye roll. Absolutely. So just a few days after refusing to take the breathalyzer test in January, he was accused of criminally harassing an unknown woman over a period of three days from January 2nd to January 5th. These accusations would be stayed by the court on the day the trial would begin in August of that year. Wow. That's Mm -hmm. a little suspicious. In June of that same year, Basil was charged with uttering death threats to kill Marianne and for an alleged assault against her in 2008. Again, these charges were stayed by the court in October of that same year. What? Yeah. He's in and out of court, but he's actually never convicted. And when can she get a break? Like, honestly. Mm -hmm. Just a month after those charges were filed, another alleged assault against another unnamed woman was made. And can you guess what happened to those charges? They got dropped. Exactly. And did she drop them? It just says that they were stayed by the court in 2012. Okay. I'm assuming he's bullying them into dropping those charges. All of these women all drop their charges every single time. That's so frustrating. Yeah, he's probably threatening them or trying to manipulate them. Well, obviously not trying to. He does to get them to drop those charges. Yeah, they're not just magically dropping them. No. So the, And then when those charges are dropped, that's not going to show up on his history. They do show up, but they can't be taken into account. Oh, okay. And that's the whole, you're innocent until proven guilty. And for these charges, he's never proven guilty. So in the eyes of the court, when he goes up for later charges, he's innocent of them. Right. Because he was never proven guilty. Right. Makes sense. As Basil was dealing with all these court proceedings, he met Natalie Warmadam, a hospice nurse that was working with his ailing father at the time. Natalie grew up in the country and had originally worked as a technical writer for a software company, but she wanted something more meaningful. So she moved and went back to school to become a palliative care nurse. So Basil met her while she was caring for his father. That's unfortunate. She had a huge heart and was not afraid to take on a challenge. At the time that she met Basil, she had just gone through a divorce and was raising her two children in a home that needed a lot of repairs and upkeep. It wouldn't be long before Basil weaseled his way into her life and moved into her farmhouse. So he's seen a vulnerable woman and pouncing. Yeah. He tells Natalie that he's just what she needs. He'll move in and help her with the house and the kids. And he's just this nice guy. And so she lets him move into her house. Right. And she's probably thinking, you know, because she's met him while she's taking care of his father. So, oh, look, he's taking care of his dad and he's just so caring. Mm -hmm. So totally a wolf in sheep's clothing just to get in. That Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. And then that sheep's clothing, the second he's probably in there, comes off. Yeah. 
Basil drums up a whole bunch of sympathy with Natalie, telling her about all the hardships that he has had to endure, his accidents and the false accusations by his ex-wife. And Natalie initially believes him and even advocates for him during his divorce <gasps> proceedings. No. Yeah, she goes in as a character witness and says, he's a nice guy. He's oh been goodness. helping me. Oh, the poor girl. Natalie's ex-husband, who is still present in her life because of her children, was suspicious of how quickly Basil had moved into the house. And so he hired a private detective to do a background check on him. Oh, wow. Good mm -hmm. for him. He's Normally said, you would think maybe that's creepy, but in this case, good for him. Yeah. Well, this guy's around his kids, right? He's living in oh, the house with sure. his kids. And so he yeah. does a background check to say, who is this guy? Like, where did he come from? But the background check only raises a flag on the DUI. Yeah, because a background check would just have convictions, right? Yeah. And so far, that's all he's been charged with. Yeah. And it didn't go back as far as the 1977 one. Okay. It doesn't take long for Natalie's opinion to change of Basil. In the last weeks of their relationship, Natalie would tell Basil that it was over, but he would refuse to leave, saying that now he was entitled to half of her things because they had lived common law. A friend gave her the courage to go to the police and tell them of the abuse and the fear that she had felt because of Basil's behavior. And on July 27, 2012, she had him arrested for threatening to strangle and skin her son, Adrian. <gasps> oh no. He also threatened the family dog at the same time, and he broke a whole bunch of furniture in her house in one of his temperature entrums. Oh, that's terrible. When he faced these charges in court, his record only showed one prior assault conviction, the one from 1977, and it did not show the multiple times that assault allegations had been made and dropped. Natalie dropped the assault charges in favor of Basil pleading guilty to the threat charges against her son. So even she drops her assault charges. Oh. Because of the lack of convictions, Basil was only given five months. And by the time of the sentencing took place, he only served another 33 days. Oh my. So Basil was released on January 8th, 2013 on a two-year probation term with a 10-year weapons ban. And as a huge oversight, he kept his PAL license. So... The PAL license in Canada is your possession license for holding a gun. So they didn't strip him of his license. No, I don't know why that didn't happen, but he still retained his PAL license, even though he had this 10-year weapons ban against him. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. In 2013, Basil would enter into two different relationships, big air quotes around relationships, one with Carol Colletton, who he met at the Wilno Tavern. Carol visited the area during summer months, spending time at her cottage on Lake Kamenskig. The two had a casual relationship over the summer. Carol was a recent widow and was preparing to retire from a career in public service. So he's preying on these women now who are recently divorced or widowed. They make him feel good, right? He can be the big hero in their family because he can help them fix up their house and provide companionship. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. Oh, you're broken? Let me come in and help you, but actually I'll just smash you down more. Yeah. In the winter of 2013, Basil had moved on to Anastasia Kuzak, who had been the real estate agent to sell his property that he had fought over with Marianne. Oh. Anastasia was described as an accomplished equestrian and a lover of nature and animals. There are conflicting reports if this was a sexual relationship, but what is known is that Basil moved into her home just a short time after the two struck up a friendly conversation at the Wilno Tavern. Oh. Anastasia had recently bought a farmhouse after breaking up with her boyfriend. She was struggling with the rundown property and had financial issues. Basil would convince Anastasia that he was just what she needed, that he would help her fix up the house, and he would help her save money. Wow. So, so hard to say if that was a romantic arrangement or not. Yeah. Even during his confession, he he goes back and forth between whether they were actually in a relationship or whether he treated her like his daughter. At one point in the confession, he's talking about how she would sit on his lap and he just couldn't even get hard because he thought of her as his daughter. 
Oh, I know. So gross. But then other times he's like, yeah, we were in a relationship. So they probably were then. And there was one report where Anastasia said, yes, that the relationship had been platonic, but at one evening it had went too far. Okay. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. So whether they had this platonic or sexual relationship, what they did have was a relationship of abuse. Right. It's not relevant if they did or not. Yeah. I was just curious because it sounds like if she was hiring him kind of like as a farm help. No, that's the next one. Oh, yeah. Wait, we'll get there. All right. So when he moved in with her, it was not long after being released from prison and it was actually a direct violation to his probation terms. And he didn't get arrested for breaking his probation? Nope. He would spin a tale for Anastasia and convince her that he was the victim of malicious exes that told lies about him and that the police and the judges always believed the word of the women over his. Yeah, right. He's the one who keeps getting off. And when he's starting out with these women, he's probably all sweet and kind. And mm-hmm. so they would believe him. Yeah. But and where if- was the probation officer? Were, are they not supposed to check on their residence? They are. And that's why I said this case will really have you question the merits of probation. Yeah. What the heck is it actually for if they're not going to follow through on it there's a reason they give people probation and just don't let them off scot-free and you know they're done their jail term and we wave goodbye to them and say hey have a good life right they're on probation so that they can actually write their lives be reformed and make sure that process is happening and it needs to be monitored Mm -hmm. well for it to be successful right absolutely But the arrangement did not last very long. On December 30th, Anastasia had Basil arrested after a terrifying night of abuse. Basil flew into a rage and began to burn her childhood heirlooms, including an old rocking horse, and then started to savagely beat and choke her. (gasps) During the attack, Basil told Anastasia that she had to be punished because of what all the other women had done to him. That's common for Mm -hmm. serial killers. They're taking out their frustration and their anger. On somebody who's present. On everybody because Mm -hmm. of one other relationship often their mom or a spouse or you know somebody else yeah he just had so much pent-up rage towards these other women that it needed to go somewhere and she was there and so he beat her and choked her for it simply just because she was a woman she deserved it yeah anastasia would later tell the investigating officer that I honestly thought he was going to kill me. I could see the switch go off in his eyes. During the beating, she said that she even begged him just to kill her because it was so (gasps) painful. Oh, how horrific. Mm -hmm. Anastasia was reluctant to report the beating at first, but Natalie would convince her not to let the assault drop, something that she wishes she had not done. Oh, good for Natalie. Mm-hmm. So the two actually knew each other. I was just going to ask. It's interesting it's a small that they town. were. Yeah, I guess so. Hey? Mm-hmm. Basil was convicted of assault and mischief under $5,000. But his sentence, again, failed to reflect the past allegations and all the dropped assault charges. He was sentenced to 575 days in jail. What? So by the time that he was sentenced, by the time it had went through the court system and actually reached sentencing, he would only spend another 120 days after the conviction was made. Oh. He just keeps getting slapped on the wrist over Mm -hmm. and over. Yeah. What the heck, Canada? And remember, during both of these so-called relationships, he's still on probation from the previous conviction of uttering death threats. How is this happening? He had repeatedly broken the terms of his probation. And in reality, the only condition of his probation that he actually met was not getting a weapon. And it didn't stop him from using his hands on Anastasia. Yeah. A lot of times predators don't need a weapon, which makes the attack that much more up close and personal. And brutal. Yeah. He was released from jail on December 27th, 2014 for choking Anastasia. When he was released, he refused to sign a probation agreement 
that mandated that he stay away from Anastasia and out of the county where she lived, and that he had to attend a therapy program called Living Without Violence. Even though he refused to acknowledge the terms of his probation, he was still released. What? So you get to decide if you want to sign your probation agreement? Like, why is that even an option? It shouldn't be. No, it should be. If you're not going to sign this, you're staying in jail, buddy. In this case, when they asked him to sign this probation agreement, he wouldn't talk to them. He, He just refused outright to sign it. Well, then you haul his bud back to jail. They didn't do that. That's crazy to me. So he did meet with his probation officers. He got his probation officer to agree to him breaching his probation to go into the county where Anastasia lived so that he could attend the mandated therapy group. Oh, that's a bit of a loophole there. Because you want him to go to the Mm -hmm. violence group, right? And so his probation officer believed his sob story about, I want to go to the therapy group, but I can't. So she bends the rules of his probation and says, okay, you can go into the county to attend these therapy sessions. But he never shows up for a single therapy session. Oh, mm-hmm. And just uses it as an opportunity. Yeah. A therapist with the program reads the records of the attack and commented on its ferociousness and raised concerns that it did not seem like a situational attack, like it seemed more like a patterned attack. But he never had the opportunity to work with Basil because Basil would never attend any of the therapy sessions. And so right there, he's in a direct violation of his probation. He was supposed to, even though he didn't sign it, he was still ordered to go to these therapy sessions and never attended one of them. And they don't haul him back to jail. Nope. Any one of these refusals to comply with his probation could have resulted in Basil returning to jail. But instead, no sanction is ever recorded on his file. That is so crazy. And I always think with these cases where they keep getting off and getting off and getting off, like how many victims would have been saved if he had just gotten convicted right at the very beginning? Absolutely. And would have been in jail and all these women would have been spared. Or because he's getting off these so many times, doesn't that just encourage them to keep going farther and pushing the limits even farther? For sure. Because to you, if you're that person... The legal system's a joke. Yeah. I'm not saying that it is. But to him, he would just be like, ah, it's just a joke. Whatever. Like, I'll just have to spend a little bit of time in jail and... But just wait, because Basil does believe in following the law. (laughs) Wait till you hear his confession. By the spring of 2015, Basil continued to drive around the county, despite his having to forfeit his driver's license. (laughs) and had moved back into Renfrew County, where he's not allowed to live. There, he took up a residence at a social housing complex in Palmer Rapids. And that summer, he became reacquainted with Carol. So he must be a real smooth talker to get these women to actually come back and reconnect with him. Mm -hmm. He tells a good story. So Basil had learned that she was getting her cottage ready to sell and offered to do casual labor for her. So remember when he made that comment about farm help? Yeah, farm help. This is how he weasels his way into her life. Over the summer of 2015, Basil would report that the two were in a relationship, but friends and family of Carol's would say that it wasn't true. They say that she had taken him up on the offer to help her out in a time of need with the repairs to the cottage after her husband had died, but then was feeling overwhelmed when Basil's shoddy work, missed deadlines, and constant presence caused her more problems. Ooh, constant presence. So Uh he's like stalking her a little? Yeah. And friends would even warn her that, I think you've got a stalker here, Carol. Oh my goodness. Basil would start projects without her knowing and at times would cause property damage when he felt slighted by her. He would even show up at her house in North Grower, despite Carol never having given him her home address. Ooh, that's creepy. 
So when she asked him, like, hey, how did you get my home address? He explains that he got it off of some Christmas card that she sent him. But she doesn't recall sending him a Christmas card. Oh, probably not. No. Nobody is sending Basil a Christmas card. But if you don't send him one, you're going to be on that list on his lawn. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Maybe you send him one just to remain off the list. (laughs) Carol's actions and dating habits indicate that she did not believe that they were in a relationship. On Labor Day, Basil sees Carol sitting on another man's lap and he rips out her flower beds, leaving all the plants to die. What? Mm -hmm. So in this cottage that she's getting ready to sell, he had been helping her plant some flower beds and he goes and rips out all the plants. Like in a little temper tantrum. Mm -hmm. Like a little five-year-old boy. Yeah. In the following weeks, Basil sends Carol numerous texts and makes several phone calls to her phone. He uses threats and arguments of persuasion to assert himself as her boyfriend and take a permanent place in her life. In one of the texts, he tells Carol, if you do a negative thing and continue in denial, blame me, things will happen. It won't be a snowball of good things, but a forest fire of bad things. More gossip, more untruths, more lies to hide the lies. Maybe police, courts, nothing good for me, to you, for anyone. Oh my. And in a follow-up text message, he backtracks a little saying, Karma sent you to me and me to you, but we were meant to be together. I don't think this. I know this. You feel this. It's totally up to you now. Are we going down a negative path or a positive path? There are only two choices, right or wrong, positive or negative, truth or lie. What a manipulator. Uh And this is where he makes his victims feel like it's their fault. That's right. It's up to you. You get to choose how this goes. Text exchanges continue for days. Basil stresses in one of his messages that he's not a violent or vengeful person. Well, I would hate to see what he thinks is a violent and vengeful person then. Yeah. On the 14th, Basil attends his final session with his probation officer. So now we're two years past his last conviction. And like all the other appointments before, he complains about his finances, his housing situation, and his lack of transportation, which I think is a huge joke because he was driving all around the county in a friend's car the whole time. So I think this is where he's just trying to drum up sympathy and act like more of a victim to his probation officer because on paper he's not supposed to be driving so he's Mm going to leave the part out that he is driving and he's playing the victim of oh this is making life so difficult for me i need my driver's license back and the mental health crisis management worker would later reveal that he believed that basil had handwritten a letter at some point during this week that read judge not lest you be judged now you will be judged by me I'm getting out and I'm taking as many that have abused me as possible with me. Justice in capital letters. That letter wouldn't be delivered until the Friday after the murders take place. Oh, no. So he totally feels justified. Mm -hmm. He totally feels like he's a victim. Yeah. And that he needs to bring justice to these people that have done him wrong. On September 20th, Carol breaks the news to Basil that she's back together with a friend and he does not take it well. He texts her throughout the night. Which friend? What are you talking about? Is this why I had such a bad gut feeling? Did you go to a false friend again? Don't run away. Face the problems. You need to talk to me. You owe me that much, please. That night, Basil sends 15 unanswered messages to Carol. Oh my goodness. And when she doesn't answer, he shows up at her cottage the next day and confronts her about the relationship. In Basil's own words, he says that Carol called him the best friend who will do anything and that her new boyfriend and her joked about it and said that she was laughing at him. He was enraged at the thought of her using him and laughing at him. So he makes signs with scrap wood and black markers and posts them around her cottage. 
he's really into this little yeah. sign making thing. <laughs> he should have been a sign maker. <laughs> so what do these signs say? All about how she's this vindictive, self-centered human being and that people wow. should be warned that she owes him money. And so he's really into public shaming. Mm -hmm. In his last text to Carol that evening on September 21st, around 6 p.m., he says, You are a cruel, vindictive, self-centered human being. You have no heart and no conscience. You hooked me real good. I believed you and in you. Karma will pay you for your heartless ways. Bye. Wish I never met you. I will endure the betrayal of yet another false friend. Karma will take over. Wow. But unfortunately, I'm guessing he doesn't do what he says. He's not going to just leave her. Definitely not. He doesn't. After plastering the property with sarcastic and hurtful signs, Basil returns to his home and begins to drink with a neighbor. He tells the neighbor that he just found his girlfriend in bed with another man and discusses the difference between killing and murder in the Bible. Oh. So already he's like building this great big story up in his head that he's this, you know, jilted lover, that she's done him all wrong. Yeah. And really, she never felt she was in a relationship with him at, at any point. So Basil then retrieves a decades-old sawed-off 12-gauge shotgun. He says he found the gun in the floorboards of an old motorhome in a nearby scrapyard. And because he's not allowed to have a weapon under the terms of his parole, he had stashed it in the bushes outside of his apartment. Oh, man. He then falls asleep on the couch in a drunken stupor with a Bible in his hands. Oh, I think he needs to go reread that Bible. Well, apparently he's very well-versed in the Bible. He says over and over during his confession that he'll take on any pastor or minister and quote Bible verses to them and he'll correct them when they get it wrong. And that's scary to me when someone is like that with the Bible and then they're still like so evil. That's scary. Yeah. So there is a whole text conversation that goes on between Carol and her new boyfriend about Basil showing up at her house that day. Mm -hmm. And her boyfriend is like, go report that to the police or please don't stay at the cottage overnight by yourself. And Carol kind of just brushes it off. And she says, you know what? Everything will be fine. We tend to do that though, don't we? Mm -hmm. It's okay, ladies. Cause a commotion. Make a stir. If we don't stand up for ourselves, who's going to? It's true. And so this boyfriend, Craig, he makes the comment to her in a text saying, I told her I didn't want to read about her in the paper. So just to come home. And she just texted him. Good night. All is okay here. Something's going to happen though. Or we wouldn't be here talking about That's it. That's right. And I just want you to remember that conversation. And we'll go back to, to Craig's text messages to her on the day of the 22nd. Okay. At 7.30 the next morning on September 22nd, Basil is seen on the apartment's hallway security cameras, leaving the building wearing a camouflaged hat and pants. He retrieves the gun from behind the bushes and drove away in his neighbor's car. He drives 20 kilometers to Carol's cottage. When he arrives, Carol just happens to be walking out of her house. When she sees him, she runs back inside and locks the door, but this doesn't stop Basil. Oh, no. He simply smashes the window on the door with his elbow and reaches in and unlocks the door. <gasps> That's terrifying. Mm -hmm. Carol tries to tell him that a man from the hydro is coming and that he should leave right away, but Basil becomes enraged by the lie and chases her down with a length of coax cable he finds in the cottage. He beats Carol with it and then begins to wrap it around her head and neck six times. No. According to Basil, Carol was pleading the whole time saying, this is not you, Basil. And I wonder if she was actually saying this to him or if this is just his belief that she would say something like this because he still sees himself as a good guy. And so I wonder if it's his brain kind of trying to reconcile. You're actually murdering somebody and you're physically strangling somebody. 
But with his perception that he's this good guy and the victim of the story, how do you reconcile those together? Or do you think she actually said it? I don't know. Only he knows. Only Basil knows that. But I can see where you're going with that. Because that would, for him, it would justify it. Like, no, I'm not a bad guy. Even Carol knew. So it's okay. Even Carol knew. It wasn't actually me. I was just acting under God's will. That's what he says in his confession. It's God's will. Yeah, he does. Ew, yuck. It's not, Basil. Sorry to break it to you, honey. Before leaving Carol's house, Basil smokes a cigarette that police would later find in her kitchen sink, leaving behind undeniable evidence that Basil was in Carol's home that morning. He empties her purse, taking her keys, cell phone, and money, and drives off in her Mazda 3. But before he leaves, he places $100 in the front seat of his neighbor's car because he's a good guy after all. He's leaving her gas money. That's crazy. Because he took her car. Yeah, gas money that he just stole from Carol, who he just murdered. Yep. Great guy. Basil drives 33 kilometers to Wilno, where he arrives at the home at Anastasia. Oh, he's on a rampage now. Oh, yeah. He's just going to go down the list. That's right. Oh, he's, no. he's made lists for years. Oh, no. Anastasia begins to scream, and her sister Ava, who is upstairs at the time, comes down the stairs and runs after Basil to confront him saying stay away from my sister she watches him go to his car from the window and come back into the house with a shotgun (gasps) basil enters the home and finds anastasia in the kitchen basil asks her why did you lie in court and when anastasia says she didn't basil shoots her in the neck in the kitchen (gasps) basil recalls there was a little island and she was standing and she just went down the gun went off and she went down. It was as if it was supposed to be. Well, yeah, when you shoot someone in the neck, Basil, they're going to fall to the ground. But he just thinks it just happened like it was supposed to. Because it was so easy. Mm -hmm. He just walked in and shot her in the neck. Ava heard the gunshot and started running out of the house in the direction of the road. At 8.52, she places a frantic call to 911 after she was able to flag down a road crew for help. Oh, I'm glad she didn't get killed as well. As Basil drives the 32 kilometers of winding back roads to Natalie's farmhouse, He thinks that God is making this easy for him because both Carol and Anastasia came outside and revealed themselves to him. So that because they were just there at their houses, he believes that God was preparing the way for him to do this. Because everything fell into place. Mm -hmm. From the date of Basil's release, Natalie had lived in constant fear. He had once confided in her that if Marianne ever succeeded in getting him convicted with her lies, that he would kill her. Natalie had stood up for herself and Basil had done jail time for the threats that he had made to her son. So she was fearful of what he would do to her. She had put up surveillance cameras around her property. She had a panic alarm issued to her because of the fear of Basil's retaliation. And she had even bought a shotgun and hid it under her bed. But none of these precautions would help her at all. Her surveillance camera catches Basil's arrival at her house at 9.31. He lets himself in the door, obviously still feeling at home. Oh no. When Natalie sees him, she screams and runs toward her son Adrian, who is on the couch in the living room. He has only the briefest moment to register that Basil is chasing his mom with a gun, and he runs outside to safety, hiding in a nearby bush. He calls 911, but it's too late. He hears the gun go off. Basil recalls shooting Natalie, saying, I just drove in, walked in the door, and she was sitting right there. She went around the corner, I followed her, boom, walked out, that's it. And it was funny. It was like, I wasn't even pulling the trigger the gun the gun just was going off just like bloop what basil had shot natalie in the neck as well his exit from the house is caught on the surveillance cameras two minutes later 
two minutes it took him. Yep, two minutes. That's all. And how brave of her little boy to yeah. run out of the house and hide and just to know what to do. Like, Or he could have been collateral damage. Adrian would stay lying in the woods on his stomach, hid for over an hour, waiting oh, for police to arrive. How traumatic. Like, that's another life now that he's destroyed. Yeah, both Adrian, so Natalie's son, and Ava, Anastasia's sister, mm-hmm. both heard the gunshot that killed their family members. And that is something that would probably never leave. In their victim impact statements, they say that it's something that they're still traumatized by. Yeah, that would haunt I probably you. always will. Yeah, that would haunt you forever. Yeah. As Basil leaves Natalie's home traveling east, he believes that God was telling him where to turn next. Nine kilometers away from the farmhouse, Carol's cell phone rings and Basil throws it into a ditch. A short while later, he pulls into a rest stop saying to himself, I don't understand why you wanted me to do that, but there must be a reason. He then continues to drive, repeating the words, Our Father at least every 10 minutes, eager to follow the next prompting and asking, God, where do I go next? So he's talking to God all this time. Yeah, he really thinks that he was directed by God. Oh, no. The next stop on his road trip of murder would be at 111 Burnstown Road. It is believed that Kyle Bancroft was his next intended victim. Basil felt that he had been stabbed in the back by Kyle over some backhoe scheme, which Kyle would later actually go to jail for. When Basil pulled into the lumber yard that Bancroft owned, he drove around the lumber yard for a bit with the shotgun loaded, but then gave up when he was not able to locate the man. So did he think that that was God's will not to yeah. kill him? Yeah, he says in his confession that this is kind of where it all starts to fall apart and he started losing that clear vision of where he was supposed to go. So he's not even done. Like how long was he wanting this to take place? Like he's just like, okay, No, he was next. just going next. Yeah, who do I kill now? 27 signs of people's names posted around his property oh and goodness. he's just working through them. As police responded to the 911 calls from both Anastasia and Natalie's homes, they had a clear suspect to look for. Basil Baruski was on a murderous rampage. A manhunt was initiated and police locked down the Pembroke Courthouse, the downtown Ottawa office of Morris's law firm, and the school his children attended and moved his ex-wife into a safe place. Police sent warnings to the public for everyone to remain indoors. Because he had such a long list of people that he felt had betrayed him, police didn't know where Basil was going to turn up next. Yeah. So they actually were issuing emergency alerts for people to stay in their house. Basically, if you have crossed his path in any form ever in your life, you could be on the list. Yep. If you begged his groceries, you could be on the list. Put his milk in with his cleaners. Yeah. You could be on the list. Yeah. Give him paper, not plastic. So police were led by clues from one crime scene to the next, and it was like they were following Basil's path of destruction. So they started looking around for who do we feel he's been the most betrayed by? Who has he been complaining about to other people? And they track down Carol's body without anybody calling it in because she was alone in the cottage. Police would find Carol's body around 11 a.m. that same morning. Craig, her boyfriend, had texted her at 12 11 and had kind of joked about, hey, your BF is on a killing spree. It wasn't until late that afternoon why he learned that she didn't reply. Oh no, she was already passed. Police would find Basil at his family's hunting camp at 3735 Bex Road in Kinburn. They contacted Arthur, Basil's brother, and brought him to a mobile command center to have him text Basil and negotiate a surrender. Through a series of texts with his brother, Basil says, yes, I did it. They took my life away from me. I was innocent of every charge ever laid against me. The guilty have paid. Justice finally. I am tired. His text would continue. If they would have listened to me, none of this would have happened. I'm not guilty. The system destroyed me. I have nothing left. Murder is killing something innocent. I didn't. Oh my goodness. And what does he mean they took his life away from him? He hardly did time. He was a free man. Yeah. What a dirtbag. 
While he was in hiding, Basil also texted his neighbor to tell her where to find her car and that he had left money in the console for her. And he texts his daughter to say goodbye. In his last words to her, he says, I'm all alone. Nobody ever believes me. With a helicopter circling overhead and two teams of officers approaching him in an L-shaped formation, complete with tactical snipers and a canine unit surrounding him, Basil surrenders at 2.30 that afternoon. He enters an adjoining field unarmed with his brother relaying instructions through text messages messages saying hands up no gun wow so he's listening to his brother mm-hmm. yeah i don't think i've ever heard of that like through text message yeah <laughs> like usually it's like a megaphone like the police have his brother texting him the so- police have his brother at the mobile command center yeah and with a negotiator by his side they're telling him what to say to him to get him to surrender wow Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So as he's taken into custody, Basil asks, do you want to know where the gun is? Police follow his directions and find a rusted old shotgun lying in the long grass next to a sandwich bag full of shells and a note impaled on a branch that says, I have no gun. Don't murder me. I give up. What a weasel. On the evening that Basil is taken into custody, he is offered to meet with a lawyer, but he declines. When one is arranged for him, he refuses to speak to the lawyer. So Why? Does he think God's going to save him? He thinks he's innocent. Oh my yeah. goodness. During his confession, which lasts almost five hours he declines to have an attorney present and originally he's a little bit reluctant at first to talk about the murders but what he does want to talk about is how he's been wronged and how this whole justice system has led to him being victimized and has led to what he did why am i not surprised what a narcissist he really is it isn't until the detective asks him what others will think of him that basil loses his composure and becomes agitated as he contemplates that others may not see the death of these three women the way he does. He is very concerned about how he is portrayed. Referring to himself in third person, Basil laments to the detective about the injustice he felt at other people judging him and not giving him a fair chance, he said. But nobody wanted to prove that Basil was innocent. They wanted to find a way to make Basil guilty instead. It is this need to have others realize his victimization that spurs him on to confessing to killing Carol, Natalie, and Anastasia. Throughout the confession, Basil admits to killing the women, but refuses to take responsibility for murdering them. He felt that it wasn't murder because they were guilty of telling lies about him and telling lies to him and that they treated him unfairly. Because they were guilty of that grievous sin, they had to be punished. At one point in the confession, he explains that it was his original plan to take his own life, but he was unable to do so because he was innocent and that would be murder. Wow. Insert eye roll. Insert eye roll. Oh my goodness. He believed that he was under the direction from God and that his pathway was shown to him. He believed that he was being guided and he describes watching himself commit the murders like a zombie. He claimed that this wasn't me. I was going places from where I effing had no idea and it was like someone telling me to go here and to go there and effing down this road and that road. Never met one cruiser or nothing because the sight of cruisers panics me. I believe that God was telling me where to turn. So he totally believes that he's doing God's work. Yeah. And that Yes, he killed those women, but it was not murder because they deserved to die. Wow. And so so you watched all five hours of his confession. Mm-hmm. So do you feel like he truly believes this or it's just what he's Absolutely saying Absolutely 100%. He believes that they had to die. And that, to me, makes it so scary. Like when we talked about William Michael Dennis, when he murdered his wife, how he felt like he was obligated to murder her. And this is how Basil felt. Which just makes it so much more scary to me when they totally believe that they are justified in killing and in murdering. Killing and murdering is the same thing people (laughs) not to basil 
So Basil perceived that the actions and movements that the three women took to confront him or run away as part of a twisted confession of guilt and that he was justified to punish them for the lies that they had created. So he was perceiving their actions like, oh, she was just sitting there when I walked in. It was just a confirmation that what he was doing was right. Where in fact, she was just a sitting duck. Yeah, she was just sitting in her kitchen. Yeah. One of the quotes he says is, because then everything was as if it was a play. Carol opened the door. Anastasia walked right out the door of the house. I walked up to the door and opened it. And Natalie was right there. It was as if it was supposed to be, except when I got to where the fat man was, and that was Kyle. Right. The fat man wasn't there. And it was like the tape playing broke. When I was there, where was the fat man? So he was just expecting to walk in and see Kyle just sitting there like a duck. Yeah. And I'll just go in there and pop him and keep going. Yeah. He probably was genuinely shocked and surprised. Mm, Because he honestly felt like he was being guided and directed. So wouldn't that be your sign then that, okay, your mission's over? Like if you're totally believing this? Well, and that's what he did is he went and hid then. He didn't go on with the rest of his mission because the tape broke. I didn't know where to go next. And so he went and hid at a family member's hunting camp. Right. So I wonder how many people Kyle saved by not being there that day. Yeah. Who knows? Good job, Kyle. Good job for being busy. (laughs) His next plan was to kill two officers that had treated him unfairly in the past. Basil was so fixated on the perceived slights that he had received from the police and the fat man that he repeatedly returned to this topic over and over again during his confession. On Wednesday, September 23rd, Basil was charged with the murders of all three women, 36-year-old Anastasia Kuzak, 48-year-old Natalie Warmerdam, and 66-year-old Carol Colletton. Prior to the court hearings, the judge ordered Basil to have a psychiatric assessment done. I was wondering about this, like what is the psychological testing going to say? Basil refused to even state his name. After 30 minutes, the psychiatrist could only report that an assessment was not possible. This same scenario would be repeated again with a second psychiatrist in September 2017. Interesting. So he just wouldn't talk. The trial was expected to last up to 17 weeks, but actually only lasted six. And this was because Basil refused to actively participate in any of the court proceedings, even though he had chosen to represent himself. What? Mm -hmm. He remained silent for six weeks of proceedings, only choosing to speak by interrupting the judge as he was giving the jury instructions just prior to deliberations. What? So he didn't actually defend himself? Nope. Like he didn't bring forth any kind of a case? Nope. So I wonder if he didn't do it so then he could blame the judge. Like I didn't get a fair trial. Like was he wanting a mistrial? I think so. And it's so funny that he said nothing because he's so cunning. Why would he just do that? That is so out of character. So bizarre. Yeah. You think that he would want to defend his actions. Yeah. But he accuses the judge of lying and saying that he feels that he was unfairly treated. Well, good thing all the court proceedings are documented. Mm -hmm. There's a reason we do that. Yeah. After the jury retired, the only other time he addresses the court is when the jury retires for deliberations. He says out loud, I am not guilty. After the jury's not even there. Yeah. (laughs) Basil. You're a day late and a dollar short. <laughs> a jury of six men and five women returned guilty verdicts on two counts of first degree murder and one count of second degree murder. Oh, which one is second degree murder? Like Carol. Why? It was because it was considered a crime of opportunity because he, he didn't oh. kill her with the gun. He, it was the coax cable that was actually at her house. Oh, okay. I think that's what had it. Where the other one, he walked in with a gun, okay, purposely gotcha. going after them. Okay. After the sentencing, the judge made the statement. From time to time, a crime is so deplorable, so devoid of mercy, so cold-blooded, that denunciation, retribution, and giving a sense of justice to the many victims and the community at large becomes the paramount and virtually singular consideration. This is one such case. Basil was sentenced to 70 years and is not eligible for parole until he's 128 years old. (laughs) 
Yay. Yeah. So he won't be back out on the street. He can't get probation again. Following the trial and the sentencing, this case became part of a review for intimate partner homicides in the province of Ontario with the purpose of making recommendations to prevent future deaths. There was a lot of media attention because everybody knew he was like this. Yeah. He had this long history and it was just because he wasn't convicted that those allegations weren't taken into consideration when he faced sentencing for his past crimes. And so this whole huge task force was mandated to review this case and find out what went wrong. Yeah. The task force have identified 41 indicators such as sexual jealousy, prior threats with a weapon, access to firearms, or victim vulnerability that demonstrated, in hindsight, the potential for lethality. In almost three quarters of the cases the committee reviewed, it identifies seven risk factors. In this particular case, there were 13. Wow. Mm -hmm. The inquest points out the need for better training for the police officers and law officials to deal with victims who are reluctant to press charges or whose relationships with their abusers aren't stereotypical. Unfortunately, like most reviews, the recommendations of the committee are just that. They're just recommendations and they're not binding. So just because they did this review of these cases, it doesn't mean that they'll actually bring about any change, but hopefully it will. And I think this really is a case that makes you question how many chances one person should get. He was a well-known offender. And just because his other charges never amounted to convictions, the sheer volume of them should have raised some suspicions about his nature. If they had even taken even the last abuse charges more seriously and considered his past offenses more thoroughly, three deaths could have been prevented. Oh, for sure. So do you think that the courts should have used his past accusations against him or because he was never convicted that they shouldn't have seen that as relevant in his character assessment? And so essentially you're going by that guilty until proven innocent. Right. Which can be dangerous to do. Mm -hmm. Of course, looking back in Basil's case, absolutely. We we should have done that. that. Yeah. Yeah. The ball was definitely dropped. Maybe the police should have pressed charges if they could have at that time or other things. Even just his probation being like they let him go without his probation being signed or bending the rules for him. So definitely there were some balls dropped. Yeah. In general, if I got accused of something and I really didn't do it. And then that was used against you. Yeah. Even though I was not convicted, that wouldn't be fair either. Well, and people's lives have been ruined in that case, too. And so I totally get why it's innocent until proven guilty. And I do think it should be. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, we should be innocent until proven guilty. But is there a statute on how many accusations you can have of the same kind of crime until it gets actually brought up in court? Well, it should be. Why can we not have at least it noted that he's been accused of this this many times? Yeah, but then that changes your perception of his character. And so that's yeah, why it's not noted. That's true. That's tricky. So that's the crazy case of Basil Barutsky, the rampage killer who believed that he was responsible for righting the injustices of society. Wow. He is disturbed. Thanks for telling me about another Canadian dirtbag. <laughs> Melissa's good at finding the good Canadian cases. Because we're not all. Please, thank you. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but most of us are. <laughs> <laughs> we do like to be kind up here in Canada. We do. And we hope you'll be kind and leave us a review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> that was really smooth, Melissa, how you added that in there. <laughs> I love it. But yeah, please do. And please join us next week when I will have another case for you. We'll see you all next week. Have a wonderful day. See ya. Bye. your turn to say something. Can you do something better? I don't have anything better.
And now all of our listeners are wondering if it's them. <laughs> Usually I'm sitting there staring off into space. <laughs> she is a firecracker being held back today. It's time to grow up. Stop saying so, Melissa. Don't say so. Luckily it had been vacant. Vacant. Luckily it had been vacant. <laughs> Unstability. Is that a word? Unstable stability. <laughs> What's the word? Instability. So wouldn't this be a huge indicator of his instability? Instability. No. Instability. Oh, okay. <laughs> Take 54. <laughs> so wouldn't this be a huge red flag about his instability? Instability. <laughs> I think I have instability right now. Basil, you're under my skin. For a week, gotcha. work, that's why she's just retarded. Retarded. <laughs> <laughs> she has just retired from one cream cream scene. Ooh, what kind <laughs> of scene? <is> <laughs> hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people. He, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all had. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.